Welcome to the Golfer's Journal podcast, everyone, presented by Titleist, the number one ball in golf. I'm Tom Coyne, senior writer at the Golfer's Journal, and today, a rare and very special podcast for you, you architecture folks. This is like uncovering a treasure trove, and you're not going to hear what we're about to play for you anywhere else. So I'm joined today by my good friend and Golfer's Journal contributor, writer, social media guy, just all-around stick. When it comes to golf, Jay Revel, Jay, what's happening? How are things down in Tallahassee? Go Knowles. Yeah, go Knowles indeed. Uh, we're recording on uh, Big Rivalry Week down here. Got Miami rolling to town, but uh, life is good, man. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. A lot of time on the road, but uh, got some time home this week and wanted to talk to you about this story that you did for Golfer's Journal number 10. We, You know, we've been talking about this one for a while. I'm thrilled. The folks are actually now getting a chance to read it when this airs. It'll be, you know, in their, well, it'll be in their mailbox on their coffee table or maybe on its way in the mail. I think really one of the highlights of number 10 is what you've done here, uh, an oral history of the making of Tobacco Road. So why don't you just tell folks a little bit about the story if they haven't read it yet? Sure. Um, you know, my, I feel like, you know, anytime you dig into someone's life and their work and a particular place like Tobacco Road, you really feel like you get to know, you know, people and places. And in the case of Mike Strantz, who has been gone from this world for close to 15 years, um, that's kind of an interesting thing, right? And you know, my road to getting to know his story um, sort of happened by accident. I was having lunch one day. Uh, when I was president of our local country club here in Tallahassee, Capital City Country Club, uh, with this great guy named Forrest Fesler. And Forrest is a part of the story, and he's a part of Mike's story. And Forrest sort of a local legend here in Tallahassee. He was on tour, uh, 1973 Rookie of the Year, and kind of famous for wearing shorts in the U.S. Open, which a lot of people knew that story. I know that came up on the podcast the other day with you and Connor talking. Yeah, it did. That's funny. Uh, it's yeah, it's a great story. I mean, Forrest was this just incredible character, and so you know he's kind of a local legend here, and he was known for doing uh, the shorts thing, and then also for having a golf construction company. And I sat down with him to talk about building some bunkers at our golf course one day uh, as part of our plan, and I had no idea that his story intertwined with that of Mike Strantz. It just was not on my radar at the time, and. Uh, we sat down for what we thought would probably be a 30 minute lunch and ended up, uh, talking for a couple of hours and I ended up breaking out a notebook and he told me a lot about the relationship that he had with Mike. And he told me a lot about what it was like building golf courses with him. And I got sucked into that world a little bit. And, um, six months later, you know, little did we know Forrest, uh, found out, he had a brain tumor and was gone from us pretty quickly. And yeah. uh, that was a, a really yeah. sad day and um, not something that uh, any of us expected. But I'm glad that I got to document a lot of their story while I could. And I had published some notes about those stories uh, online. And then one day I got a call from our friends at the Golfer's Journal to maybe take a detour on that story and get a deeper understanding of really the seminal work that they did together at Tobacco Road. That's and awesome. I went, yeah, it was. And so I, I went up to Tobacco Road and spent some time with uh, the owners there uh, and the original crew 
that worked with Mike Strantz and Forrest Fessler to shape and build that golf course. And over the course of, uh, gosh, I think we ended up recording about seven hours of conversations. Uh, we really got to what I believe is uh, the, the best parts of the story of how Tobacco Road came to be and really uh, a, a deep understanding of who Mike was as a person and who he was as a golf architect and uh, why that course still resonates with so many people today. It's so cool. I was I was there a few months ago and, you know, Tobacco Road, it's it's a course that, I mean, it just blew me away. I never played, played anywhere like it. I don't think, you know, it kind of cuts both ways. I don't imagine it's for everybody. You talk to people who say, uh, you know, you should play Tobacco Road so that you know, like, why the other courses in Pinehurst are good or something like that. Um, and, and I've, and I've heard that and I, I kind of feel sorry for them because there's just fun and artistry, I guess really is, is the word in that golf course. And it is so incredibly unique. So seven hours of recordings, folks, if you haven't seen number 10 yet, it's 600 pages long, uh, because of Jay's Jay's seven hours of recording, which is really, <laughs> really great. No, it's it's not. We we whittled it down to the to the best bits. But one of the most interesting things that I think you came across is what we're actually going to share with listeners today. How did you come across the tapes? So you know, an incredible part of the Tobacco Road story uh, beyond Mike's life and his existence as an architect and an artist, and all the cast of characters that went with his crew. Um, is the story of the gentleman who decided to uh, get in the golf business by developing that property. Uh, you've got these two great guys there, Mark Stewart and Tony Waddell. Uh, they're brother-in-laws. They owned a road paving company. And, uh, you know, as Mark would probably tell you, they, they really didn't have any business getting into the golf industry, but felt like it was a challenge they were up for. And one of the, the coolest things about those guys is the reverence that they have for the work that Mike left them with. Um, they really do revere Mike. They think the world of him, they have preserved a lot of documents and details and the original drawings from when Mike was there building the golf course. And luckily for us, they had the foresight to record a number of video interviews and other documentation of the construction of the golf course. So this would have been, you know, in 1998, 1999, um, which was probably kind of rare back then. I mean, nowadays you would think, you know, in the world of social media, that's commonplace to do those types of things and regularly feed out content. But these guys had the foresight to record some interviews with Mike. And, you know, unfortunately, again, you know, we lost Mike in 2005 way too soon. He only left us nine golf courses that were his original designs. And the tapes that were made of Mike at Tobacco Road are probably some of the most important source material um, of him and his career and his time uh, in golf course architecture. And so as we were going through the process of building out the story, uh, Mark handed me over a variety of these recordings that we dug into and uh, for the purposes of our listeners today, I know we've gone through and compiled some of the most interesting tidbits that we'll jump into here, but they really are, uh, uh, they're sort of like the Dead Sea Scrolls, right, of golf yeah. course architecture and Mike Strands. They really it's are. Cool. It's really cool. You're not going to hear this this anywhere else, the chance to sort of listen. You know, we've listened to these and to listen to Mike Strands' voice. You know, I've played a few of his courses, and 
and because he's not around anymore, there's something about the experience that you you kind of guess that you might kind of feel like you know him. You know, you see his, his picture in the clubhouse there at Bulls Bay, and I'm just so psyched for this. So, Jay, thanks so much for for doing this, for for getting these recordings for us. We're about to jump into them. Before we get to the tapes, it's it's hard to wait. I, I know. I just want to remind folks that if you are out playing Tobacco Road or any road or any course and you want to prove how good you can be, Tee up a Pro V1 or Pro V1X and prove your game in your next round. We want to thank our sponsors from the pages of the Golfer's Journal. That's Link Soul, Scotty Cameron, Titleist, Oakley, New York Private Bank and Trust, and Links and Kings. We hope you're enjoying issue number 10. And if you don't have it, subscribe now and remember to re-up your subscriptions. You know, we don't have a lot of ads in the magazine, and that's because of you, the subscribers to the Golfer's Journal, who allow us to do what we do here which is right now something incredibly cool. So let's take a trip down Tobacco Road. First, we're going to hear from Mike talking about how he got started in the golf business. Uh, I got started in the golf business kind of a roundabout way. I uh, <clears throat> was When I was old enough to start working, 15, 16 years old, I worked at a golf course just pushing the mower, cutting around underneath trees, just any kind of menial thing you can think about. And just, just kind of fell in love with that kind of work. Um, and when it was time to go to college, I went as a, uh, in fine arts as a studio art major. Um, I, fortunately, about into my second year of college, I had the, the uh, enough insight to figure out that I had, did not have the self-discipline to make it as an artist at age 22. I knew there was no way that I could make myself sit down and do that every day. So um, I just changed course completely, went to, uh, withdrew from school there, transferred to Michigan State, got in the turf management program and um, was gonna become like a golf course superintendent. And I was doing kind of an internship at a place called the Inverness Club, which was getting ready for the U.S. Open in 1979. And Tom Fazio at that time was under contract with the USGA to do any kind of modifications to the tournament sites. And uh, I just kind of fell in with them. Uh, they, they had a gentleman there, Andy Banfield, who uh, was, was Tommy's right-hand man on that job. and. Um, I really owe a lot to Andy. He's basically the one who got me in the business. I guess he saw that I had some kind of talent and told Tom about it. And one thing led to another. The day after the U.S. Open, I was on a plane to Hilton Head working for Tommy. So that's pretty much how I got into it. I love that story. I love how he talks about starting off as, you know, a fine arts major. Um, that seems to make that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I mean, you know, Mike definitely took a, a bit of a circuitous path to uh, becoming the golf course architect. And, you know, it, it it's one of those true stories, right, where every detail of his life went on to shape how his work turned out. Um, being that art in that in that fine arts program, he was at uh, Miami of Ohio and, you know, deciding, hey, maybe this is not the best way to make a living, goes to Michigan State gets into the turf grass program and then that you know that chance meeting and, and being on the staff at Inverness with uh, Fazio and crew really was just a, a massive deal for him I mean uh, a lot of people will say things along the lines of you know some of Fazio's best work was built at the hands of Mike Strantz you know the courses that 
were sort of the, the classic Fazio designs of the uh, early to mid-1980s, uh, a lot of them had uh, Mike Strantz on site, you know, working in the dirt uh, to make them come to life. And uh, he will tell he would, I, I talk about him like, you know, like we've talked, I guess, but um, it gets that way after a while. But I think he would tell folks that uh, Fazio's influence was, was just as important on his career as his artistic background. And you know, as you mentioned earlier, you go to a place like Tobacco Road or any of his courses, everywhere you go on the golf course, it, it looks like a painting. Uh, it's, it's, he used this expression uh, that the golf courses you know, were designed in full, 360 degrees of design. You, there's nowhere that you look from, you know, say we're on a, I don't know, a run-of-the-mill golf course, you might get on the other side of a green and look back down the hole and things don't look tied in all together right. But with Strance, everything was tied in. Everything fit. The puzzle looked just as good from one side as it did from any other. And that's because he was an artist and he believed in filling out the entirety of the canvas. And, you know, art is subjective. And I think he wanted his golf courses to be that way. He wanted people to come off thinking about it later on down the road. Agreed. Now let's hear about the first time that he saw Tobacco Road and the process of scoping it out as a site. When I first came to this site, Tobacco Road site, what I, what I first saw, I was kind of forewarned. Mark told me, Mark Stewart told me that uh, this site was the, an old abandoned sand pit, basically, that had been used to uh, mine material for their, their asphalt plant. Uh, so I kind of knew, I kind of thought anyway, that it had good possibilities before I even saw it. And, and uh, when I got here and, and started to see these little sections of, uh, of this real, uh, these rugged sand areas and these little pine trees that are three feet off the ground that are 15 years old and just a real uh, rustic, gnarly looking atmosphere. Uh, and I, I knew immediately it could be something really, um, it's not only spectacular, but unique. Usually on a, uh, on a site, on a piece of ground, um, different characteristics that will um, lend themselves to a, a, a kind of a unique product, something different. And, and as I say, this thing had it. It had, um, it had these sandy areas and it also had some, some, hard, some nice hardwoods. Um, but that kind of that scrubby, real rough look to it um, that uh, is going to lend itself to a lot of variety of golf holes, little different subtle looks on every hole. Um, just just uh, elevation is important, you know, uh, um, and, and some of that stuff you can't really tell from, from ground proofing it the first time, and that's when you start working with aerial topography and that kind of thing. And uh, so that's what we did. I walked the site, got some aerial topos, did preliminary layouts of the golf course on it, and then came back out and walked it again. And just by natural features, you can pick out, you can pretty much orient yourself to where you're at on that topo. And just kind of started massaging golf holes and easing them around. And, um, you know, it's more or less done. Uh, I don't want to say 100% in the field because that's not true, but a lot of the final stuff is done in the field because uh, aerial topos don't take into account uh, any kind of vegetation that you might have, any kind of uh, specimen trees or 
um, not, not here, but in other instances, any kind of rock formations, it really doesn't show up. So you really need to kind of get that thing, get a rough idea of what you want to do with the golf holes and the routing, and then get out there and walk around the golf course. And I probably walked a site uh, oh, probably 10 times before we finalized the routing program. And uh, it's not done that way by many people anymore. That's the way the old guys used to do it. They used to spend a lot of time on the ground. You know, they didn't have the high-tech stuff to, uh, to do all this aerial uh, topography with, and they really spent a lot of time out on the site and on the ground. And that's, it's just, that's the way I do it, and it's the way I like to work. Um, and and it's, I think it's kind of unique to the, to the business anymore. Not that many people are, are spending that much time on a particular project. Topos. I love that word. I want to find ways to mix it into conversations. Yeah, I, of all the interviews we did, one of my maybe favorite pieces of it was really the first thing that I did is I, I played the golf course with Mark Stewart. And Mark, you know, walks us around and he's he's giving me memories of his childhood out there while his family was operating the uh, sand pit and showing me how different pieces of equipment that they would have used left the land looking in certain ways and even take me to places where, you know, you used to go run and play through the woods and you can really get a sense of what it was like um, before the golf course was there. And, you know, Strantz was, you know, you certainly wouldn't classify him as a minimalist golf architect, but what he did do was he had this unique ability and this is this artistic, you know, mindset where, he would blur the boundaries between the man-made and the natural. Um, and it, it probably does it as well as anyone you'll ever find. It's very hard to find the seams on that golf course, so to speak. You know, you, you can't really see, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can tell where things, some things got built, but in other places it, 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 it's a little bit harder. Um, and it's just so beautifully crafted and you can tell that so much went into it. And, you know, when he talks about that, um, Again, this was recorded, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, when he's talking about that hands-on, craftsman-like approach to building a golf course, that was that was, you know, an ancient way of doing things. And now, you know, the trends you see in golf course architecture—that's what's in again. And uh, you know, some would say maybe we're in the in the midst or tail end of the second golden age of golf architecture. Well. You know, Mike was definitely on the forefront of that. You know, I mean, I, I, I believe that had he survived, you know, you might have seen a Mike Strantz golf course at a place like Bandon Dunes or uh, another one of the Mike Kaiser properties or a place like Streamsong. I mean, you could think that his mind would fit into those philosophies just as well. And I think the way in which he went about building golf courses, even though was different stylistically than some of his uh, contemporaries, you know, Tom Doak and uh, Bill and Ben and uh, David McClay kid. But he, he, even though he had his own signature style, it was in keeping with the craftsman mentality and that hands-on uh, uh, approach to really shaping things out there. And, you know, Tobacco Road, there's just, just boo coodles of evidence of that all around. I mean, there are places where you can walk around that golf course and again with a Mark Stewart that he can point to. This looks a lot like the way it did when he found it. This is something that he took and he altered and it's hard to tell the difference. Yeah. I like how you say that, the, how he blurs the lines between the man-made and the natural. 
I think that's sort of the magic. I think you, you put your finger on something there because like you said, these are places, these are courses that you think about and not just as you're playing, playing them, but they sort of stay with you. Uh, and they, that idea of there's so much drama on the golf course, but was it, is it sort of some natural miracle? Or was there some other hands involved? And yeah, for sure, that that trend now is. I mean, you you, you think about like Gil Hands on on the bulldozer, you know, like like designers are yeah. are back in the dirt, and uh, and so he was certainly ahead of his time there. Let's hear about what Mike Strands was looking for on the ground. Well, when, when I walk the grounds on on any site, um, it, it, it's as I said before, it's it's picking out the uh, whatever characteristics and whatever um, particular peculiarities with in regards to vegetation um, contour just you know it's, it's it's hard to put a finger on it's just the overall feel of the entire piece of ground um, here in Sanford at Tobacco Road it would be uh, as I said, the sand areas, the scrubby pine areas, the neat uh, native grasses that are growing out here, but which you get a feel of when you all the way down uh, Rocky Fork Church Road. You know, you're you get you're in the sand hills. You feel you're in the sand hills, and and just to kind of keep carrying that through, and for the person being out there to play golf to know he's on every hole. I'm, Okay, I'm here. I'm in the sand hills. You know, I'm not just playing golf anywhere. This this golf course could be in Myrtle Beach. It could be up in Ohio somewhere. I mean, this is a sand hills golf course. So to try to maintain that kind of what you first pick out and what you see, and to play up on that is important. Um, now Ashboro, which is the job we're doing after this, different stories. Huge hardwood trees big, huge rock formations, real steep contours. I mean, those are the characteristics you look for on that golf course. And you, you, there we will play around those particular things. And it'll be a totally different kind of golf course. It'll, it won't even, won't even resemble this golf course. I like this idea of, and I've heard this idea from, you know, from David McClay Kidd and, and Gil Hans, this, this notion that a great golf course sort of blends and works with its works with the land in a way that that sort of feels organic and natural that it doesn't try and change its surroundings but works with its surroundings and again you know here's mike strands talking about that concept you know 20 years ago no you're 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 dead on you know um one of the things that you know like what felt like you talked about the seven hours of recording right there's a lot of good stuff that got kind of left on the cutting room floor right we do the yeah, the director's cut of this one day is <laughs> pretty interesting. But, um, you know, when I was talking to Mike's um, former wife, uh, Heidi, um, his widow, she told me so many interesting things about, you know, the way that he lived and what kind of effect that had on the way he did his work. Right. So one of those things is that he was an audiophile. Right. I mean, he he loved music and he had this great listening room for music. Uh, at their home in South Carolina, and in particular, love jazz. Um, so when I think about the way that maybe he is different from, again, some of his contemporaries, is that where they might, you know, where, where you know, the word minimalism, again, comes into play a lot, and you talk about laying a golf course gently on the land, Mike was more of saying, hey, here's a good beat. I'm going to give you a jazz riff based on the land. You know what I mean? He, he would, 
he was going to give you his take on the themes that were present in the land in front of him. And it was going to make you feel like you were definitely in some place unique, uh, but it was going to have that artist's flair to it, right? I mean, he would he would take um, a, a, a very interesting piece of property with peculiarities, like he mentioned, and, and add drama to it um, and uh, bring rises and falls. And, you know, Forrest liked to say that a, a Mike Strance golf course was uh, was more like a roller coaster than anything, you know, and you got off of it and some people want to get back on and ride again and other people want to go, you know, run to the bathroom and get, get out of there, you know. It, it, <laughs> for sure. It's, it's, it's not for everyone. I but... love that. So let's hear from Mike talking about uh, drawing golf holes. You usually don't start drawing the golf holes until after they've been cleared or at least 75% cleared because it's real hard to see what you have on the ground. I mean, you can look... Uh, if we were to look at uh, X amount of acres out here and you see the trees out there and you know what the contours are underneath it, um, you could come up with a concept, but those topos are never 100% correct. You don't know if that's ex gonna be exactly what you have there. And a lot of times I know that um, we have been, you know, you get the trees off of a site and you get, it's, surprised uh, just just didn't think it was something was going to be that quite that dramatic or it's not quite what you thought it was going to be from looking at the topos and then you have to start making adjustments so you try to do that before you get locked into what you're going to do on that golf hole all right so kind of a cool quick glimpse into his process a little bit there yeah you know when talking to his team of uh, shapers uh, I mean these, these guys are just you talk about being just moved by someone's existence, right? I mean, they, they loved working with Mike and, and, and it's important, you know, we can touch up, we'll probably touch on this later, but they didn't work for Mike. They worked with Mike. They were all very much a team. And this is, you know, we had Mark White, Jeff Jones and Mike Jones, uh, who were all there together talking about, uh, the way in which Mike would design golf holes and the stories they have of him standing there with his sketch pad looking at a raw piece of land and drawing out the golf hole. He would rip it out of the pad, hand it to them. They'd put it on the windshield of the dozer, and that's what they used to build uh, the golf hole with. They tried to mirror what he did in the drawing. And I don't think there's any question that, that Mike probably had this you know, photographic memory uh, in which he could recall the way that he visioned something in his head with, with great specificity. I mean, pretty incredible where he'd come back to maybe check on the progress of a hole a few days later and without even having to consult the sketchbook again, he could tell them whether or not, um, their, uh, their lines were correct and, and almost, you know, to a T and again, amazingly with no plans, no formal plans. He never had any formal plans for a single golf hole he ever built. Uh, the fact that they were able to take those original drawings and make that landscape look exactly how he drew it is just remarkable. And, and uh, if you've never had a chance to dig in and look at some of his drawings and actually compare them to the way in which the golf holes look today, it's, it's mesmerizing. It's they're spot on. The big thing that Mike would tell his shapers were start with the horizon lines, get your horizon, right. And then build everything down from there. And uh, if you look at his sketches, you can tell that that's how he drew uh, as well. What a beautiful process that is as well versus not that there's anything wrong with 
computers and 3D graphics and all those kinds yeah. of renderings that folks work with today. But just this idea of sketching something out on a piece of paper and then putting it on a on a windshield and going for it, it worked for sure. So let's hear about let's hear about a little bit of Zen from Mike Strands. I think the way that I tend to look at it. Um, you know, golf course design and construction, I look at it very artistically, uh, which would uh, be compatible with, with, you know, your thought on being a kind of a Zen thing. I mean, art to me, as well as music, any of the fine arts is very much a, uh, it's kind of very much a spiritual thing. It's, it's, it is a thing of feeling. It's, it's a thing of beauty and um, it touches a part of the human soul that, that I don't think other things do. And that's the way that I tend to look at golf course architecture. It's functional artwork to me. Um, I think that the art training and background that I have has always helped me as far as drawing out what we want to see and everything. But you just, or at least I do, you just get out there and I just feel things. You know, it's just real hard to put a handle on that. It's real difficult to explain how and why you do it. Um, but, you know, I, I would think that. Uh, any artist or musician could probably get caught up in the same type of thing, um, you know, unless they were really into talking about themselves, which, you know, I'm, I'm not that kind of person. But you don't know why you do it. You just do it. I mean, it's just a, it's a second nature, I guess. That's probably one of my favorite clips because he sort of gets into a sort of depth there that's really compelling and even bringing up this sort of notion of art and course design and the spiritual, which is kind of a word that can freak people out. But to me, it's a word that essentially means this sort of awareness of something bigger than yourself. And I think a great golf course, and it's not just strands courses that have it, but maybe that's why I love links courses as well, because there's sometimes that, that sort of feeling feels more accessible, this, this sense of this grandeur. But I just love him talking about his approach um, as, a, as a really soulful, spiritual thing. No, I think that's, I would agree, that's one of my favorite clips, too. And, um, you know, when you think about artists, right, I mean, it, it, you truly have to think of him almost in that light first and in golf architect second um, to really understand the way in which he went about doing what he did. And just like, you know, you might think of an artist getting lost for hours in their work and really being in their element. You know, I think some artists are, are more comfortable in that working environment than they are in their normal day-to-day -day life, right? I mean, they're sort of like their real life and their real existence is being in that work. And then everything else is sort of the moments in between. Um, you know, I mean, Mike was a huge family guy, but I think he had this, this is sort of my opinion. I, I think he had this internal conflict between, you know, do I need to be home with my family or do I need to be out doing the work I was put on this world to do? And, um, you know, that, that's an essential part of his story. And, you know, when you talk about him being soulful and the, in golf courses being soulful, I, I really believe that he poured everything he had into every course he ever built. Um, you know, the last course they ever built together, um, Monterey Peninsula Country Club, the shore course there, uh, was, you know, he was, he was literally at the end of his life as he was doing it. And I think he poured every ounce he had left into that one. And, you know, when you talk to some of the, the, the folks out there at Tobacco Road, particularly I remember a conversation with Morgan uh, Stevenson, the superintendent, you know, 
Oregon swears he can feel him out there. And he, he just, he says, I get chills, you know, walking around because I just get the sense that he's still there. And, and the guys um, from the shaping crew, you know, would tell you that when they come back to touch up work out there, sometimes they just throw their hands up and look up in the sky and say, Mike, need your help here, man. Need you to guide me and tell me what you would have done. And, and they really believe that, that he's with them and he's, and he's telling them how to, how to um, keep it consistent with what they all built 20 years ago. And I just think that only happens when you have someone who truly gives every ounce of what they have into their work. And uh, he was that kind of artist. It's amazing. uh, That kind of impact to have that sort of impact on people. It's absolutely beautiful. This is all really inspiring, might inspire you to think about, I want to design a golf course as well. So let's hear what Mike Strands has to say about, can you teach someone to be a course architect? I'm, I'm not sure you can, Bruce. Uh, I don't know if any. I'm not sure that this job can be taught. Uh, you know, I, I'll compare it again to um, just just regular artwork. Uh, you can teach people technically how to do things. Uh, you can teach a person to technically how to paint. Uh, you can teach a person technically how to throw uh, on the wheel and, and turn out pottery and ceramics and that kind of thing. Um, you can teach a person technically how to play the piano, but I don't think you can teach someone to be, uh, I mean, think of a, uh, someone who's very prolific, uh, you know, on, on like the piano. I mean, who would you, who would you think that, uh, someone like, uh, uh Marcus Roberts or, uh, um, uh, Herbie Hancock, you know, any kind of jazz musician like that. I mean, you, you can't teach someone to play like that. I mean, they either have it or they don't. Uh, you could teach someone to be a golf course architect to a certain point. Now, whether you, you can, I don't think, unless they really possess the, the feel and, and a lot of the intangibles that, that go with creating these grand products, I'm not sure you can teach that to somebody. I think you either have it or you don't. That one's super interesting to me uh, as someone who teaches fine art, who teaches creative writing, because that question comes up a lot. You know, can 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 writing, can artistry, can it be taught? And it's one that, you know, certainly every teacher of a subject like that sort of wrestles with. I think that you can make a good artist better. Um, but can you make a great artist? You know, no, I think he's right. There's certainly something innate in that. And what we're, what he's sort of talking about there, I would compare to what we describe in my field is, is voice. Your voice is your fingerprint. You know, it's the thing that makes your golf course or your canvas or your paragraph, you know, your own. And, uh, and, and voice is something that's sort of like teaching speed, right? That's, you, you sort of have that. Or, or maybe you don't. Yeah, no, I, th- I think you're dead on. I mean, you know, you can certainly teach someone how to turn a dozer on and, you know, how to make certain kinds of cut and fills and some techniques, you know. Um, same thing if you're painting on a canvas, right? I mean, you can teach someone some general techniques with brush strokes and how to use different varieties of, uh, of paints or, you know, how to operate in certain mediums. But um, you can't teach someone creativity right i mean that's it's a it's a natural inherent thing that comes from your experiences and it comes from uh it's a it's it's what pours out of you when you uh you know sort of tap the keg of your soul right i mean um 
and it's different for everyone. And so the way in which Mike built golf holes, he was the only one who could build them that way. And, you know, I, I think that's remains true. If you look at his golf courses, um, you know, if you got dropped off in the middle of one of them somewhere and you had any knowledge of, of another one of them, you kind of could probably go, okay, well, this kind of feels like something he might've done. Um, they, they have a recognizable, like you said, fingerprint to them. Uh, great shout out there to Marcus Roberts, associate professor of jazz studies at the Florida state university. <laughs> um, it, the, uh, you know, he, he's a virtuoso, you know, on the piano. And, you know, if you've never listened to him play, you should, uh, because when you listen to that, think of Mike sitting in his home with his headphones on listening to that kind of jazz music and trying to translate that kind of creativity into what he did as a golf course architect. And I think if you, if you can understand a little bit of, of jazz, you will understand Strance better. I mean, that's a, that's a very real thing. And I think understanding him as an artist, like I said, is first and foremost in trying to get a, a, a sense of who he was as a golf architect. That is beautiful. And I love the idea of tapping the keg of your soul well said, Jay. I'm gonna probably use that in a, <laughs> use that in an upcoming workshop. Um, so definitely, Strand's known for some visually intimidating golf holes. Let's hear what he has to say about that. Uh, it's also one of the first holes that you actually see when you drive into the place before you even get to the clubhouse. So kind of a nice little setup for for what you're in store for. And then, of course, as you continue your drive, um, you you drive basically through the old pit that you hit across on number 18T, which is, you know, I just think it's a neat environment. I mean, you're getting somebody set up. I mean, they're driving right through the thing on the way in, just going, oh my gosh, or at least that's what we hope they're saying, in a good way, you know I mean? Because it, it will be, uh, fit, visually, it will be much more, seem much more intimidating than it really is. Um, and that's been true with, I think, most of the golf courses that I've done on my own. Um, uh, there's a lot more width out there, a lot more, not more ways for you to play the golf hole. So um, I think it's a neat start. Uh, that would describe number 14. Uh, number 18 is, is different. Number 18, you still have you have a downhill tee shot, but it's kind of a blind tee shot. And you, you can't see where the ball is going. You get down in there, you come up over the crest, and it's kind of a surprise. And you see this fairway laid out in front of you, big, huge, wide fairway. And it's kind of like, ooh, man, this is pretty neat. And, and you get out to your tee shot, and the green is kind of cut through a little slot between two, a little a ridge right in there that was kind of a natural little ridge that was in there. And, you know, you see part of the flag stick. You can't quite see the whole thing. So it's kind of anticipation in that respect, you know. Um, I've always liked those kind of golf holes. A lot of people hate them. A lot of people just absolutely despise blind shots. But as long as you don't have 18 greens set up like that, you know, I don't think that's a problem. I've always liked the fact that you see part of the flag stick, you think you've hit a great shot. I think I hit a great shot. And it's that anticipation, you know, getting over the hill. You, you find yourself leaning up in that cart seat looking to see, you know, exactly how close you may or may not have gotten the ball. So um, I think those are, those, those are two holes that are, uh, you know, not really similar. They're kind of different. And I think that's the case with all the holes out here. There's a great deal of, of variety, a great deal of uphill shots, downhill shots. Um, there's a few blind greens. Uh, there's some greens that are just stuck way out there for everybody to see. Um, a lot of shots you could just basically roll it up to the green if that's what you choose to do. So um, you know, a lot of variety. And I think that's what's going to make the golf course uh, a popular golf course. 
Well, he was certainly right about that. A very popular golf course, and he's talking there about just even the drive into Tobacco Road, how the sort of experience starts there, you know, where you can see 14, which is like the par three that you'll see in your dreams or your nightmares. And then, you know, those and the and the blind shots and even, you know, the first hole at, at Tobacco Road where you kind of look out and you wonder, you know, where do I hit it? So I think he's right. I think people like you said, some people hate that. They 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 hate not having it right in front of them or having to guess what's behind, you know, that hill or over there. And um obviously that's a problem easily solved by just playing it again. But for me, I, I think that's kind of fun. I, I enjoy that having a little bit of guesswork. It just feels like, you know, I'm going to do my best to hit the best shot. And I want to trust and hope that the golf course, you know, is playing with me. And and I think that's kind of a cool experience. Yeah, you know, I mean, golf should be an adventure, right? I mean, it, it that that's the reason if you, I mean, you're the, the, the king of this, right, Tom? I mean, if you're, if you're someone who travels to see golf courses and have golf related experiences, you really don't ever want to see the same thing twice. You know, you want to go out and see places that are, are, are interesting and compelling and certainly not boring. And, you know, nothing that Mike ever left uh, for us all to go and see is boring. You'll never find a boring Mike Strands golf hole. Uh, it's just not out there. I, I find that, uh, you know, in, in today's age, um, you know, the, the person that reminds me a lot of, of Mike's mentality is Rob Collins. Um, yeah, I think anybody who's ever been to Sweetens and probably played tobacco road would, would feel like maybe they're distant cousins in some ways. There's just a lot of really beautiful artistic elements in both and some interesting shot scenarios that, that most architects, you know, wouldn't dare to try. I, 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 one of the commonalities between both of their probably philosophies, right. Is, um, I think they both have a real admiration for Alistair McKenzie. Um, I think about uh, Strance's love for McKenzie's, not only his work, but for his words. Um, he could quote you uh, uh, immediately, top of mind, passages from The Spirit of St. Andrews. I mean, he was a huge Alistair McKenzie fan, had read that book numerous times. And so, you know, like the other day I had seen the guys at Sweetens had put up a new sign at the shed uh, that was a great um, quote from Alistair McKenzie. Um, you know, it's only natural that players who have been spoon-fed on insepid, flat, uh, uninteresting golf should view with a considerable amount of suspicion anything which is undoubtedly out of the ordinary. And Mike Look at you just that pulling that off the one. top of your head, too. <laughs> You're like Mike Strands. I love it. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's a fabulous piece of uh well-crafted language uh from the good doctor that he left us and you know people like Strantz find that and find inspiration in that i think rob's doing that today and um you know that's that's what you know the maverick lived for i mean that that was his nickname right i mean Strantz earned that name of him as a maverick uh very honestly because he just was going to do things his way and he was going to leave you either with uh, you're either going to be, you know, kicking yourself in disgust after a shot or exuberant uh, because you had just done something incredible on a hole that maybe didn't warrant it. So that's that's what he wanted you to feel. And I think he did a good job of that everywhere he went. Absolutely. Nothing boring about it for sure. And yeah, I grabbed I grabbed a picture of that sign when I was down at Sweetens. I could see Rob listening to jazz. Mike had a unique method of spray painting fairway lines. So let's let's hear about 
uh, one of his design practices. Well, when we when we put marks down, spraying these little lines on the ground for whatever, whether it be uh, transplant areas or pine straw or usually sod uh, edges. You know, it's almost like putting the finishing touches on a painting. That's that's what people are going to see. Um, you've been s sort of visualizing this since day one when you've cleared the golf hole. You know, so it's kind of a, it's a very, to me anyway, a, a very anticipatory time. I really look forward to that, and and it, it's it's like when you finish a painting. You know, you put the final touches on, it, and then you get back and you look at it, and you. You know, I've cleaned brushes off before and looked at it after the brushes have been cleaned and you know, get back out and dirty up a brush. And, you know, it just has to be just just right, you know. And, I, and so that's why I do it. And, and again, most people don't do it that way. Uh, um, but, you know, I'll, I drive guys nuts. I'll change the lines by this much out there. But it's just, you know, it's just a, I want to feel good when I get done with it. I want to feel like, okay, that's the way I want it. It looks good that way. So. Um, you know, it's, to me, it's worth every minute you invest in it, but uh, it does get kind of tedious. So it seems only fitting that the artist is actually out there using paint on, on the grass. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that's important to know about Mike is he was absolutely a perfectionist, right? I mean, he had this, like I said earlier, uh, photographic memory. There's this great story where uh, one of the guys was telling me that one weekend, I think Mike was maybe heading back down to South Carolina to go see his family. And as they were kind of wrapping things up on a Friday afternoon, they went over there and kicked dirt over one of his dirt lines because they didn't think it looked right. And they kind of repainted it and then went and dug uh, the cut line for this bunker. And he gets back on Monday and he gets over there and you can see, I guess, they, you know, he's like driving his cart and he stops. And he looks over at this particular spot. I mean, you know, whole golf course, you got tons of little uh, intricate design elements all over it. And he stops and he can tell that they've changed this one particular place. And he goes over, has him redo, rework the entire thing. I mean, he was an absolute perfectionist. He, he wasn't afraid to keep making changes on the fly until he felt like that. And as he said, that painting was the way that it needed to be, or at least the way that he saw it in his mind. And, uh, you know, there was a, a definitely a, a uniqueness to the way he went about it. He had this um, uh, spray can uh, little pointer, you know, right, where he uh, a little spray, spray paint gun that he would walk around with and, and draw these lines. He would physically draw them out. Once they shaped out the rough edges of the hole, he would draw the entire thing out uh, on that canvas of dirt. And there'd be orange lines and white lines and green lines all over the place. And he'd be covered in spray paint. His boots would have spray paint all over them. Even though that was probably frustrating for them on occasion that Mike was had such a keen attention to detail, uh, that's why his products turned out so good, and that's why they loved him. Wow, yeah. I played with Morgan when I was down there. What a great guy. I wish I knew he had that. I would have loved to to seen it. Because to be able to actually draw on the ground something that you're – seeing in your mind's eye you know think about like the perspective of it you know you can okay i can see the hole from above what it should sort of look like but then actually put that foot by foot on the ground uh and keep track of what it's supposed to look like that's that's genius so speaking yeah. of some of the folks that he worked with let's listen to mike talk about giving other people credit well i'll tell you what i would like to share I, even this may never make the end product or anything but 
you know, I, I have these people, they want to interview me, they want to write stories about me, and they want to do all this and do all that. And, and I, I've made up my mind, I'm not going to do another one until the guys that work with me get credit for what they do. Because they, you know, you wouldn't be talking to me without those guys. And, and you met Forrest, Forrest Fesley, used to play tour back in the 70s and 80s. He's my right-hand man. And without Forrest, I couldn't get it done. And then the four shapers that have done every job with me so far, um, Mike Jones, his brother Jeff Jones, Luke Kinder, and um, Mark White. Those guys, they take the drawings that I do and they make them happen, they make them live. So they're really every bit as much of an artist as, as I am. And, and we all feel, and I, whenever possible, I, you know, we feel like a team effort. We, we we're kind of family. We always we, we go everywhere together, and and that's what I really enjoy about it is the relationship that I have with these guys. You know, we have a lot of fun. We joke around. You know, we 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 feel good about the product we turn out, and um, and I just want people to know that it's more of a team effort. I mean, um, and and they never get they never get credit for what they do, and I just. When I was in that position, you know, I always swore that I would, I would m make it so that, uh, you know, if, if, if I was in a position to do so, I would, I would give those people credit. You know, listening to, to Mike Strands, it's all really inspiring. And that sort of humility that he expressed there and that generosity is, you know, another thing that makes him sort of special and admirable. So it's very inspiring. But I can't help but listen to all this and kind of feel sad. You know, to, to think, you know, we're, we're listening, we're watching the clips, looking at a, a, a vibrant artist. And, uh, and to think that he, you know, like you said before, died, left us way, way too early. Yeah, I know. It, it's like I said, it, I feel like I have this relationship with him. You know, I, I, I have spent, um, you know, a lot of this year and even the year before, you know, when I was getting to know Forrest very well and, I just feel like I, I, I kind of know him a little bit. Right. And it's this strange thing. Um, I don't really know how to describe it, but you do kind of wish you could sit down and, and have these conversations with someone like Mike in person. And, and thank God we have these tapes like this where we can learn a little bit more about him. And it, and it is such a shame. I mean, he only left us nine golf courses that he, there were his original designs, his visions in full and, um, you know, thank God, uh, you've seen, uh, most of those survive pretty well. You know, I know there were the two courses he did up in Virginia struggled for some years, but now they're back online and, um, you, you can pretty much play all of his golf courses too, which is a, a big deal. I keep saying his golf courses, he would probably sit here and remind me if he was sitting in my ear saying, well, they were our golf courses, our team built it. Um, these right, guys, absolutely. they loved him to death. They were, they were, they, they just adored him. They loved working with him. Again, very important. You know, he was not the kind of architect that was going to fly in, take a peek, make some notes, and go. He was, he was wearing, you know, tattered up jean shorts and boots on, and had dirt on his skin and and sweat in his hair and a bandana and he's down in the dirt with people working on the finer elements of what his vision was. And that's what made him so compelling to the guys that he worked with. He was truly one of them. He understood them. Uh, he came from that, um, uh, that turf grass background. 
uh, a really blue collar existence and and they all connected in a really unique way there, there's this great scene in the story where um, they were all sitting there having sort of a brown bag lunch one day and uh, Mark Stewart was bringing someone out to see the property as it was under construction and he stops and he and they're in the truck together and he points at the uh, the Maverick golf design crew all sitting there brown bagging it on the, on the, uh, uh, hood of the Dozier. And he says, tell me if you can guess which one of these guys is our golf course architect. And the guy just says, Oh my gosh, one of those guys is Mike Strantz. There's no way. I mean, they were just all covered in dirt and, and eating, you know, sandwiches out of the bag. And, you know, they had this, this cool existence, right? I mean, one of the things that I thought was really neat, I got to stay in that Stewart cabin, on the property and and they all told me stories about how they were staying there and late at night you know mike and forrest you know they they would they would talk golf all day working on this golf course building it in the dirt they'd stop they'd cook an amazing dinner maybe listen to some music and they'd be right back and talking golf again they'd stay up all night and talk about golf i mean that's that's just he loved building golf holes he loved building them with his crew and there was a real family existence there. I think you're right. And so, as you said, he you know, just leaves us with just a handful of golf courses. But thankfully, the folks who operate them are committed to preserving them and celebrating them as Mike Strand's courses. And so we'll finish up here with a short conversation with Mark Stewart from Tobacco Road. But still, if you, if you don't think, you'll make some big scores. Oh, yeah. You'll shoot some. Yeah. This whole here is an example. You, you, know, you could go for birdie and make a eight or nine. Right. Uh, getting that that deep bunker behind us where the dozer is, and put your ball in your pocket and go to number twelve. Definitely. So. I think you're definitely right. I mean, you could uh, for the guy who just wants to get around, play 18 holes. I think it's easy enough for him to do that. The guy who wants to really shoot a good score can can go for some big numbers trying to do that. And, and that's all right. I, I don't have any problem with that. I think that's the way the golf course is, is laid out and thought out, and that's the way we want it to play. So, wow, that was cool. Mark, obviously an owner who is involved, but, you know, was was willing to let Strands do what he was going to do. You know, it, it's incredibly important when you think about Tobacco Road. Um, you know, take Mike, take the rest of Mike's career off the shelf for a minute. And let's focus just on this fabulous piece of property and golf course. One of the pieces of the magic of that place uh, that is incredibly important to, to uh, what makes it so cool and so fascinating and so unique is that that team that is still intact uh, both ownership and staff, right? You got you got Mark and Tony and Morgan all there every day. They've been there since day one, and they care so much about preserving the legacy of Mike. And again, they have this reverence for him and the work that he did. And they still stay in contact with the guys from the team. And um, you know, when I was there. I guess it was probably six months after Forrest had passed away. You know, you could tell there was a, 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 a genuine sadness that he was gone and couldn't be there with him. And uh, Luke Kinder had passed on a few years before that. And it, it, you know, Mark's role in this is just incredibly important. You think about maybe a, a golf course developer, quote unquote, right? And, you know, owners that some architects 
probably have to deal with. You know, we hear a lot about the, you know, the Mike Kaiser model, right, where you just have this great owner who gets it. Well, Mark is is cut of that same cloth, but in a in a totally different kind of way. You know, Mark loves golf. These are people who loved golf, had a unique piece of property, and made a decision to take an incredible risk. And when you think about the story of Tobacco Road, it there, it's risk and reward is a huge theme in there because you had these road builders who decided to take the risk of a lifetime and build this golf course. They took a risk on the guy they hired. They had to convince him to come and you know kind of come and do it because it was a little bit out of his uh, uh, geographic range that he liked to stay in. And, you know, just the whole thing is sort of feels like this happy accident sometimes. And um, you can tell that Mark knows that this sequence of events that unfolded that led him and Tony to having this amazing golf property um, happened because the universe lined up just right. And because of all those things, it changed um, their lives and uh, changed the fortunes of that community. And, uh, you know, Sanford's just a little bit on the periphery there in the Sand Hills. And um, Tobacco Road is a very important part of that local economy and why people want to come come through there. And um, it just matters. It matters a lot to all of them. And you can you can tell with every word that comes out of Mark's mouth that he's sincere and he means it. And again, he, he just he was there from day one with Mike and they had a, a, an intimate um, uh, relationship, you know, through the development of the golf course. And I think they, they still do. Right. I mean, these people miss Mike. And I think what's cool about all those guys is Tobacco Road is one of the places where they can still connect with them and they can still find him there. And if anyone who's ever had an interest in Mike Strance's life or the golf courses that he built. I think Tobacco Road is one of the, the real places that you can go and you can connect with who he was and, and gain some understanding of what he wanted to leave behind in the world as an artist. And uh, it's just a really special place. And a lot of that is because of the people who uh, who run it. Jay, I can't thank you enough for all the work you've put into this. Certainly a labor of love for you. And, you know, we're all the better for it for for all your efforts in bringing this to us. So thanks so much for the time. I hope we get out soon. I'll be down in Florida not not too long from now, I'm sure. Uh, you let me know, man. I'll uh, I'll come running with the uh, bag on the shoulder. There you go, back to Capital City. So remember to follow us at Golfer's Journal. Follow me at Coin Writer. And follow Jay. Jay, where can folks follow you? Um, at Jay Revel, uh, J-A-Y-R-E-V as in Victor, E-L-L, on uh, the Twitter and J Revel writes on Instagram and uh, jrevel.com if you want to read some of my musings on the game. They are fine, fine musings. Thanks again, Jay, and we'll see you next time on the Golfer's Journal Podcast.